I'm going to start this podcast up with another quote from another book. This book is called The Way of the Superior Man by David Dida. It's actually a recommendation from our guest this interview. When a man's value is no longer measured by what he does, by his finances or social standing, how does he determine his worth? In our new world, a man's presence, his depth of awareness, is his most valuable asset. I'd like you to pause this episode and ponder on that for a second, and then enjoy the amazing episode we have with our great guy, Bill O'Hara. We got here Bill O'Heron, corporate executive and practicing therapist who seeks to help coach people in the relationships. Bill, how's it going? It's going great, guys. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time. Hey, I got to give it to you, man. Your voice is <laughs> it's awesome. So intense. It's so cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. You should try some voiceover stuff. On this. I definitely have a. I have a. Definitely have a face for radio, um, but I don't know about the voice. But yeah, people, I've been told that before. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. I do a lot of <laughs> chanting, so I don't know if that helps. <laughs> Out in yeah. Austin, Texas, right? Yes. Yep. Down in Austin. Been down here eight years. Um, was in Connecticut 15 years before that, but we love it here. We love the sunshine. A little bit hot in the summer, but um, it's a really good, really good community. Very creative and a lot of stuff going on down here. What brought you to move, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah. Um, Mostly business, but I met my wife on a blind date in London in 1996. She's from Seattle. Um, I'm from New Jersey, and we we've always had a, a bit of a yen for travel. We we travel around the world for our honeymoon, and um, we got pregnant. She got pregnant uh, in the late 90s. We moved to Wilton, Connecticut. We were up there for a bunch of years, but you know, every four or five years, we're ready to go. We're, we were ready to move out of of, of our home up in the suburbs back to London, you know, four or five years in. It's not because we don't love our community and love where we are. We just, we love to see more. Um, mm-hmm. But we came down here because of business uh, mostly, but we did want to get out of the Northeast. Um, you know, I call it the suburban malaise. It's great in the Northeast, but there's um, um, just a different energy set. And I wanted to, I wanted to introduce my, my three girls to a different part of the world, different part of the Definitely. U.S., Definitely. Well said, man. And I, you know, over that span of eight years, I can imagine you've seen such rapid growth over in Austin, right? <laughs> 150 people a day net in the last, apparently last 10 to 12 years. It's, it's literally like the gold rush. Um, people coming out, getting away from taxation, they're getting away from the, the funky weather, um, getting a shift out of, you know, just more space. I mean, the amount of, you know, what you can buy down here space-wise versus you know, the West Coast, East Coast is, is pretty remarkable. Absolutely. So why don't we, you know, circle back to your, the beginning of your career. I see that you were in sales. Maybe you're still in sales. Yep. Um, you know, were you in financial services? I saw a little bit about that in your bio. <laughs> yeah. I was an English major in the mid eighties um, uh, and got out. My dad was a sales folk. Uh, he was in sales in the financial field. And I, there was two choices. I was going to go teach uh, English in the inner city in Manhattan, or I was going to go make money. And I looked at my bank account literally in the fall, September, 1986. And I said, I want to, I'm, I'm going to, I got to go make a little bit of money. I had zero money in my account living in my parents' house. Um, and I knew I was pretty good. I had good, you know, have, have good energy and I like people. And so I went right into financial sales. I sold research and then I got onto a trading desk. I spent, um, 
about 13 years with two phones on my ear uh, in the brokerage world, commodity brokerage world, um, hedge, covering hedge funds and long, long short managers. Um, so yeah, I, I really, I loved the challenge. I loved the interaction. You know, I was just talking to somebody the other day, like, why did you get into, you know, I still cold call. I'm 56 years old. I'll be cold calling today. Why? Because I always had a little bit of nervousness, maybe a little bit of insecurity and fear. And I figured the only way to, uh, the only way to challenge oneself and grow is to, as I like to say, stand in the fire. Um, or as another author said one time, I wrote it down on a post-it, do something every day that you fear or makes you a little bit nervous. Um, and that was a challenge for me to be in the financial field, to um, you know, take on the task of not only the market and and what it's trying to do, what you know, what you're trying to learn from the market and make money from the market, but also the challenge of interacting with people and trying to build relationships. How have you seen that world? change from when you oh, first God. got into it to now? <laughs> yeah, great question. Well, the financial field itself, uh, in terms of the amount of people, the amount of liquidity, the amount of um, smart people arbitraging or, or just investing in the market is, is completely different. When I, in 1988, when I, when I got on the desk, there was probably 10 hedge funds in the world. Uh, and the largest one was Soros, and he was managing about five hundred million dollars. Just as a just as a bogey, there just wasn't as many people in the marketplace, so the opportunities were wider. There were bigger, um, all the, all the value, if you will, had hadn't been kind of. It, it was I don't want to say it was easier to make money, but it was much less sophisticated. Number one, number two, in terms of approaching people in sales, it was all phone. There was no email. There was no texting. Um, you know, if you want, there, we were still faxing, we were faxing contracts, right? If you wanted to reach somebody, you had a, we had a list and we had a phone and that was it. Um, and you got creative and people picked up the phone. I think that's one big, mm-hmm. one big thing now, especially over the last kind of eight to 10 years because of the phone. Um, and especially because of social media, um, people feel like they can communicate powerfully, you know, through, through electronics and, you know, probably guys my age you talk to were still of the opinion of a good email is helpful, but you just pick up the phone. You got to talk to a person. I tried to get my kids, my, I got daughters in my early, in their early twenties and I'm always like, just pick up the phone. And, and it's, it's something that it's a muscle set um, and a disposition that uh, an approach that I think has been a little bit lost. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. the current way isn't good. Everything, everything evolves. I think probably I need to evolve a little bit more, but the amount of people um, and how you walk into a trading floor these days, it's quiet. Right. It's quiet because everybody's staring at the screen. Everybody's in their little insular world. Whereas when, you know, when I first started the first 10 or 15 years, it was a madhouse, right? You had to really understand body language and personalities on the desk, not just, not just your clients, but you know, what the folks around you. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to bring that up a little bit too. And Walk, walk me through what your phone call today is going to look like. I mean, mm-hmm. Maybe give our listeners kind of a, yeah. a sneak peek. Good question. Yeah, great question. Um, so I raise money for um, – I work for a family office. I've been raising money, uh, capital raising for 10 years now um, before it was research sales. So in the early days, I was um, working with an analyst uh, at a you know we had a financial firm at a research shop. We would uh, My analysts would come up with ideas, and I would sell those ideas or present those ideas – talk about those ideas to fund managers. Nowadays, what I do is I converted that research sales experience to um, calling on family offices, small institutions, um, broker dealers, REAs, and talking about our little, we have a little fund, uh, new fund that we're launching. 
So, you know, it's a great question. What does the conversation actually look like? I just try to get on the phone and ask some questions. Hey, Mr. Smith, uh, appreciate your time. This is Bill O'Heron. Um, do you have a minute to chat? Um, you know, we're a family office. We manage a bunch of our own money. And I just try to get Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith just to spend a minute or two with me on the phone. I'm just trying to learn about them. You know, I just would love to learn a little about your firm. How are you approaching the world right now? What do you think of the world right now? What's working? What's not working? So I'm really just trying to ask some questions to begin some kind of rapport. Um, I'm never talking about my product. I'm, you know, nobody cares about my product until they, you know, understand what I'm doing and what I'm trying to get at. Um, you know, and there's a lot of whiffing. There's a lot of, you know, if I make 40 calls today, 35 calls today, I'll probably have four conversations, maybe. And most of those will be, hey, send me an email with some time to speak mm -hmm. or, you know, go away, never call me again, which is primarily probably what half the calls will be. Um, if I actually get a human being on the, on the phone, but I, I love that challenge, right? You get that little pit in your stomach, they pick up the phone. Um, and you're, I'm just trying to politely, respectfully, um, enter their world, right? Get into that person's world right there. I know they're busy. I don't like to be bothered. So I know he doesn't like to be bothered. She doesn't like to be bothered. And I, I, I actually address that, say, you know, a lot of times I'll say, you know, I don't mean to bother you at all. I would just love to ask a few questions. Got it. Well, that's a good transition, probably. You know, the importance of relationships, rapport. Yeah. Um, you know, you've you've built a career on on that side of things too. So maybe maybe talk a little bit about about that side, you know, relationships yeah. and the importance of all that. Yeah. Um, I didn't really know how important relationships were. I think I had a um a naive or an unconscious sense of how important relationships were, you know, having been or being Irish. You know, I love the storytelling. I love the interaction with my friends. Um, and it wasn't until I started meditating 25 years ago um, did I realize these are there were some incredible experiences inside of us, in our memories, uh, unconscious memories, memories of our grandparents, and all these relationships that we have with our um, with our heritage, with um, like I said, our, our you know folks that have passed. My grandparents. Um, I started meditating. This sounds crazy. Some of your listeners are probably going to hang up here, but I started meditating, going really, really, um, kind of profoundly, deeply inside. And my grandfather, who had been dead for seven years, was coming back to me in my dreams, asking me to teach him yoga because I just started learning wow. yoga when I was living in London. Um, my other grandfather was coming back to me. My grandmother, memories of my grandparents who I'd never met. Think of that. Memories and images and, and experiences from folks that I hadn't met that's living. And all those experiences are living biomagnetically, living in our limbic brain, in our midbrain, in our heart and belly. Um, you know, our midbrain, our lower brain is attached to, you know, our primal brain, our reptilian brain is what, a couple hundred million years old. So there's a lot of stuff stored in there. I know it sounds crazy to our rational mind. We can't fathom how deep the well goes um, or the rabbit hole goes. Um, but I've been at this for 25 years. Um, so I had a sense that relationships were really important as I started to do more inner work. And I, then I read the grant. Oh, the Harvard. No, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I just wanted to, before we go on to the relationship stuff, I really want to dive into that, that meditation thing real quick. <laughs> I'm, now, I'm, I'm super intrigued. I believe every word you're saying because the, the power of it is incredible. But how long did it take you to get to that point where you can get so deep within your meditation? And what did your meditation practice look like? So um, 
I, I was probably one of those anomalies where I, I was 31 years old. I was working at Solomon Brothers in London. I was living a really good life on the outside and my insides were withering. My heart was withering. I was really, really unhappy. And for you know, an outsider looking in, I'm thinking, somebody would be thinking, how could you be unhappy? You're living in Sloan Square, making good money. You know, you're skiing in, skiing in France, you're vacationing in Italy, and you're going to pubs at night watching soccer. How could life be bad? But I was miserable. And a friend of mine said, you should do some therapy. And I'm like, F you, I'm from Jersey. I'll white knuckle it. Uh, and then another friend said, you should sit and meditate. I said, nah, I'm not going to do it. Well, one night I did. It was March 17th, 1996. And I put a cushion on the floor and I sat with my back straight. And my when I started to sit, my body started to shake and these tears started pouring out of me. No content, no content from these tears. Um, it was just a body reacting. And so a part of me is like, hang in there, like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? And I passed out. I passed out. First time I ever sat. And I woke up, I don't know how long it was, 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes. I, I don't even know. I woke up and I felt like there was somebody in the room. I'm like, oh my God, I've passed out. I'm downtown London. Somebody's come into my apartment. And I just, I kind of sit back up. It's, it's pitch dark. And I hear welcome back. And my whole body goes into chills and it, there are these sounds that I'm hearing. And I felt like I was being in, I was circle encircled by native American women who were chanting. Hey, and I'm like, Oh my God, I think they're going to take me away in a straitjacket. Well, let me tell you 25 years later, 25 years and two months later, literally two months later, I still hear that chant every day, every wow. day. And so when I, that moment, I realized something, there is a much bigger vista, a much bigger world. I call it a kingdom. I hope, you know, it took me 10 years to write the book, but I talk a lot about it in the book. Um, there is such a world inside of our limbic system, our heart and belly and our midbrain that is connected to eternity, that's connected to anything and everything that our rational mind really resists. And biomagnetically, um, physiologically, our rational neocortex, the youngest part of our brain, is resisting all these emotions, all these sensations, all these inner experiences. So I've been a nonstop, not a pioneer. I've been, a, I've been, a, I've been at researching and understanding self through self, through meditation, through therapy, and through research, nonstop research. In my book, I quote 67 different sources, books, um, research pieces to show how powerful the act of sitting quietly is. It's the most powerful thing you can do, period. It's, and people are like, Bill, you're crazy. You drive me crazy with this whole meditation thing. But <laughs> there is nothing more powerful a human being can do than sit quietly in a room with one's back straight. The smart, one of the smartest persons on the planet in 1642, Blaise Pascal, who's got a theorem, a triangle, and a coefficient named after him, the Pascal theory, said this, humanity's problem is, he's, is men are unable, men or women are unable to sit in a room by themselves. And when a man mm -hmm. sits in a room by himself with his back straight and breathes easily and listens to his heart, he will change his grandkids' grandkids' life experiences. That's how powerful it is. <laughs> wow. Have you, have you read <laughs> The Celestine Prophecy by any chance? Oh, yeah. Phenomenal that, book. I, it's, it's bringing me back to that. I feel like those are some Great of the experiences call. that the, the main character was having. Great call. It's a, that's a really phenomenal book. 
Um, have you have you been to Peru by any chance? I have. Yeah. Is it is the energy is what they say it is? Um. Yes, it is. But I also believe that it's sometimes it's hard to tell again because I I went down there with a lot of expectations and it was magical and it was beautiful. What I'll tell you is right where you are in Long Island or right where you are anywhere, you can find that energy. Yes, there's different vortexes in, in Northern California, in India, in Machu Picchu, in Egypt, in Stonehenge. Those are real. Those are those are the chakras of the earth. And so there's different tempos and there's different um, ma- magnetic pull in each spot. But right where we are right now, no matter where you are, you can tap into that vortices. We do not have to. I've been to 46 countries. You know, you, they, they say you travel the world seeking to find self and truth, but you find it right there on your cushion, on your floor, in your living room. That's the truth. It's all right here. Wow. And I, for so long, I fought that. And <laughs> I'll be honest, this is actually the first time I'm going to come out and say this on the podcast. The, fir- <laughs> like, the, the reason why I was able to open up to all this stuff was because I tried psilocybin mushrooms. And that opened, oh, up, yeah. my, oh, that yeah. opened up my mind to, you know, tr- say, how can I replicate this without having to be under the influence of something? Yep. Yep. And, and when did you first the try the psilocybin? Um, I believe it was right in the beginning of COVID. Okay. Yeah, it's powerful. So um, there's this gentleman, Stanislav Grof, who was part of the LSD research work back in the 60s. You can look him up. He's, I'm staring at his book, Beyond the Brain. And and in the early days, they would do these these sessions, like these psilocybin sessions he's doing these, day, these days, and he was calling it holotropic, holotropic. Now it's called holotropic breathwork. But in the beginning, they were using LSD. And he realized just what you said quietly in the mid 70s, late 70s, early 80s, what he realized is you can access that non physical, that powerful non physical eternal self um, in the body through breath, breath and music, which all the ancients have been doing for, I don't know, 50,000 years, 100,000 years. Now, I think the psilocybin and, and, and the mind kind of opening um, substances are powerful. And, I, and I'm a, I'm a, I haven't done them, you know, we, we used to do a little bit of mushrooms in college, but um, in full disclosure, but it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't medicinal. It wasn't holistic. It was pure, purely socializing. Yeah. Um, meditation, deep breaths, lying on the ground, going back, you can change, you know, you, you access those same channels. This is amazing. Thank you for shedding light on that. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, this we can talk about forever, but I do want to mm-hmm. talk about your the relationship coaching and the importance of creating relationships and why relationships fail. Let's just dive right into it before I cut okay. you off where, what you yeah. were saying. No, no, not at all. Um, So it was about eight or nine years ago. Uh, no, it came out in 2016. So Harvard did, is still doing a 75-year longitudinal study called the Grant Study. Um, and they started in the mid forties and they've tracked the class of, I think 42, 43 and 44 out of Harvard, the men and tracked them, have been tracking them. Now they're tracking their grandkids and they wanted to understand, you know, how human beings function, what's what, you know, how these men do, what dictates or what kind of, um, propel success or failures. And they boiled down their entire research piece. It's on my website. And they said, the most important thing in a human being's life is relationships. It dictates their economics. It dictates their health. Um, it dictates their sense of self, um, their kid's sense of self. It, it's it's such a powerful, it's everything. You know, you're in relationship to not only your friends, your, your cohorts, your parents, you're in relationship to the environment. You're in relationship to the 
astrologically, whether people believe it or not, you have a relationship with the energy of the planets that were that were uh, there the minute you were born in your natal chart. You have a relationship to your ancestors, whether they're here or not. We're in pure relationships. And mammals, by DNA, biophysically, um, the reason why a lot of the research say the reason why mammals survived, humans survived, is because we bandied together, we formed relationships. So it's literally part of our latent um, almost our developmental growth and our success was based on relating to other human beings. And so what happens is people, we get stuck in our own world. We get fearful. We get afraid to share. And when we get afraid to share oneself, which is called vulnerability, it's the most powerful thing a human being can do is understand vulnerability, get into vulnerability and share vulnerability. The only way relationships work whether it's in the business world or at home with your spouse, with your girlfriend, is if you and I are in a relationship right now, I share something. I get vulnerable. I share a little bit about myself, which makes you more comfortable sharing a little bit about yourself. And that's that's where the bones of the relationship come together. That's the meat of a relationship growing. That's where the, that's where the mechanism of developing some kind of rapport and understanding and trust with another person. And it's through that trust, everything happens whether it's a real estate deal, whether it's, you know, some, some relationships are really short, a broker in a real estate deal. And yeah, it's not a really deep relationship, but a relationship's important. Do you trust them? Yes. Do they trust you? And so I've been studying what happens in relationships, why they fail. And I came up with the, the only reason relationships fail is because I don't know enough about myself. And so because I don't know myself well enough, I don't know the other person well enough. And therefore we haven't been able to develop some kind of understanding. So the only way I can understand the other better is if I dig in and understand my own sadness, my own longing, my own my own joy, my own regrets, whatever those are. And as soon as I get to know mine better, it's amazing how quickly I can mm. get to understand yours. Mm. It's a vibrational thing. It's it's really an intuitive thing. Somewhere along the the rabbit hole research we do pre-research we do before, you know, for our guests that are coming on. Yep. It, I, I stumbled across a, a Something along the lines of of you saying that relationships start in fourth grade. What do you, what do you mean by that? <laughs> yes, yes, um, and I'm going to stick to it. Um, so the human being from zero to ten, the first ten years of your life, you're purely limbic. The rational mind hasn't even started yet. So what that means is your heart is and was an antenna. You soaked in, you soaked in your parents' heart sensibilities. It wasn't what your dad was saying. 80% of what you pick up the first 10 years at home isn't what your parents are saying. It's nonverbal. You picked up how your dad felt about the world. You picked up how your dad felt about himself, how he felt about women, how he felt about other cultures. So your body biophysically is soaking in your parents' life. But my book originally was going to be called The Space in Between because we soak in. Look at the research. It's powerful. First three years of your life, uh, the, the baby's skin is thinner. It's got it, you, it's absorbing its environment even more powerfully. The brain, I believe, eighty five percent of the brain's development happens the first three years of your life. Are you kidding me? Right. So we've soaked in our parents' life experiences in our limbic body, in our heart. There's forty thousand brain neurons in our heart. Our heart is soaked in our parents' experiences, and their parents soaked in their parents' experiences, and and so on. So literally, you are the kind of you're the long end of a river of experiences washed inside your body and inside your belly, inside your limbic, inside your midbrain. So that's, those are the early years. Then what happens is your rational brain starts emerging 
And our rational brain kind of shuts all that stuff out. So from the age of 14, 15 into your mid to late 20s, you're almost kind of like just out in the world doing your thing. Of course, you're feeling stuff and you're being emotional, but those are starting to shut down a little bit. They're still in there. And then what happens? Mid to late 20s, early 30s, the brain starts millenniating. That's when the left brain and the right brain, the neurons on both sides start to merge and come together. And those old memories from fourth grade start coming up. And you're like, where did that come from? Where did that feeling of insecurity come from? Where did that feeling of, I'll give you a great example. I get married to my wife um, or, or I'm in the process of getting married to my wife. And I have this kind of anger and frustration towards women. And I'm like, why would I have anger and frustration towards women? I've had a great life. I'm 31 years old. I realized as I started meditating, doing therapy, that I watched my mom browbeat my dad my entire life. And so limbically inside in fourth grade, I had this impression that women beat up on men and I felt like I should, you know, defend men. So when I got into my, you know, my early adulthood, I would get very defensive. And I'm like, where the frick did that come from? And that was a perfect example of how we soak in all this experiences. It gets embedded in our, in our limbic system. Literally the neurons get embedded with frustration, anger, joy, sadness, whatever it is, whatever we picked up. And then we come into relationship and now the friction of relationship, second law of thermodynamics, two, two bodies in place are going to be in friction until they balance out. Well, that friction kicks up what? Kicks up all these old memories, all these old sensations that we didn't know were in there. And so my marriage with my wife, when we first started, I was acting like a fourth grader. And her fourth grader is being activated by me being an asshole, me being you know dismissive, me being pedantic, me being a jerk, me being an asshole, basically. Excuse my French. And so I realized what I started doing is meditating, doing therapy and going back to fourth grade and going back to fifth grade inside myself, that dispositional self, that emotional self. And I realized, oh, that's my anger towards my mom. Oh, that's my frustration towards my dad. Oh, that's my frustration towards whatever, pollution, whatever it was. So I really do believe our emotional reactive self is fully developed by the time we get to 10th grade. And so- how are people that aren't as advanced as you in understanding this, how are they able to go back and figure out what those triggers are? Yeah, great question. Um, I have a really simple technique, um, and that is close your eyes, count yourself down, and go back to your kitchen table. I call it the kitchen table meditation. Go back to your kitchen table when you're in fourth grade. It could be wherever you had family gatherings to eat. And go back there, so you close your eyes, you're, you know, whatever, you're 32 years old or you're 28 years old or whoever's listening, close your eyes, you count yourself down, just relax yourself, deep breathe for four or five minutes, just relax and go back. I'm doing that, I'm closing my eyes right now. Go back to that kitchen and just feel into what's happening, right? So how does your mom feel? She's sitting there. How does your mom feel right now? How does your dad feel right now? How do you feel right now? And if you do that enough, one, two, three, four times, you're going to start picking up feelings, sensibilities, memories. I do this all the time in my counseling practice. It's the literally the first thing I do within 10 minutes. I don't even get into small talk with my counseling over Zoom now. It just close your eyes. Let's go back right there. Let's go back to fourth grade. And then what I actually do is I introduce the fourth grade self, the, your fourth grader living inside of you, to you, however old you are. And suddenly you start having a dialogue. Sounds crazy. You're having a dialogue with the fourth grader inside of you and you're picking stuff up. You're, 
you're, you're realizing certain things because as a kid, we have all these experiences, but we can't really do much of them, do much with them because we're still a young kid. So we can't get in the car. We can't express it. We're, you know, we can express it in our childhood ways, but now that we're an adult, now that we can, we can put our feelings and actions and frustrations into, into action, i.e. we can do therapy. We can get in the car. We can go for a walk in the woods and separate and, and, and get away from our, our parental energy. So it's really, really simple. Here's what I'll tell you though. It's the, it's one of the harder things to do, which is address the emotions inside because a lot of adults, young adults or otherwise don't want to go back in. I used to introduce Mm -hmm. this work to my parents. My parents are both healthiest horses in their mid eighties. They're like, nah, don't want to go in different generation. Don't want to go in this generation. You guys, younger generation, really, really much more willing. I, I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic of what I'm seeing in, you know, the late 20 year olds, early 30 year olds, mid 30 year olds that I'm, I'm, I've been working with my generation in our mid, mid to late fifties, you know, we're like, ah, we're good. A lot of my buddies, ah, we're good. I don't need to go back in, but you know, men don't die of a heart attack. Men die of a broke of a broken heart an unprocessed heart. So it's the most important thing you can do is open up the heart. You have to open the heart. The heart is the mechanism of the body. There's a lot of the Alzheimer's research these days is saying that Alzheimer's can be part of it caused by the heart sends 5,000 times more biomagnetic, bioelectric signals up from the heart to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. So now they're thinking that the, this heart is throwing off all this magnetic energy up into the brain and it's kind of frying the brain a little bit. What is that? That's stress. That's unprocessed emotions. That's all it is. Go into the emotions. Close your eyes. Go into fourth grade. Walk into your fourth grade class right now and just spend some time with that part of you and you'll be blown away at what comes up. I got to get you talking to my dad. (laughs) (laughs) How old is he? He's 52. Mm. Oh, he's a young pup. He's yeah, but pup. he is uh, a stubborn pup. To say the least. <laughs> All men are. And it's fear. It's it's fear. It's fear of exposing ourselves. It's fear of the world knowing the little boy in us, those little boy sensations, whatever it is. And and we inherit that. And it, it's a brave step to step into that fire of self. But yeah, yeah and that, that's the response is like, this is who I am and this is how it yeah. was. And that's it. It's like, yeah. you know, there are other things out there, you know, right? <laughs> I just briefly did the kitchen table meditation while you were speaking. Come on. It's very powerful. Come very on. Very powerful for a minute of just sitting it, there. The, my eyes the reason why I love the kitchen table areas, because if you think about the heart, hearth, the word hearth comes from heart. And that's where, you know, mammals come, humans come to eat. And it's also where we spend quiet or active time with our relatives, with our, with our brothers and sisters, with our, with our parents, with our grandparents. And so it's a really great location for this exchange of, of, of physical and non-physical energy. Um, and it's where we spent a lot of time. Like every day you were there every day. I was there in my house on, on Elm street, five, five, three Elm street. I can see the floor right now. I can see the table. I can see the orange TV. I can see the, the uh, paneled wood. I can see the Brown refrigerator and a lot of emotions are in there. Wow. Yeah, that's so crazy. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. seeing it right now too. I, yeah, uh, I can't it. stop thinking about the Celestine prophecy as we, mm-hmm. you know, as you continue talking about this. One thing that strikes, uh, that sticks out to me is what the, the author, when he talks about why relationships fail. And mm-hmm. I want to know your thought on this is he speaks about basically um, they rely on each other for energy instead of 
basically relying on themselves for energy and then coming together within a union and making each other happy. So it's like, now I have to feed off your ego to mm. be happy. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? That's a big one. That that comes up in so much of the counseling work is that if we don't feel, the, there, there isn't another human being on the planet that can truly fill the needs that I have, that any human being has. Every human being has to somehow fill those needs, whatever that is, with one's self. The challenge is if we're afraid to do that inner work, we're going to hang our hat on or hook onto somebody else satisfying my fear of separation, my fear of loneliness, my, my, my sense of inadequacy, whatever it might be, my sadness, my longing. If we're looking for the outside world to fill that need, in a way, it'll never be sated. I'm working with a a wonderful girl actually in Long Island um, right now. And she's got just, there's this, she's breaking up with this guy. It keeps coming in. And we're working on filling that longing with those younger parts of her, that 12th grade herself, that 12th grade self, that eighth grade self. She's 42. And, and it's a really hard thing because it means you have to slow down and really dig in and go inside and, and feel that sense of completeness. And when you feel that sense of I'm okay, I'm really okay who I am, then my spouse, my wife, my friends, whatever that might be, they're just going to add to the value of my life. But if I'm, if I'm relying on my wife to make me feel whole, for my wife to make, to complete me, then it'll never, happen because other human beings have their own needs. She's got her own stuff going on. And so the the union of two people, the way I look at it, a, a successful adult relationship happens when I have fulfilled 99.9% of my needs as a human being, my sense of self, doing my work, doing my therapy, you know, doing my exercise in my business, kind of finishing my day going, okay, I, I think I'm okay. Filling that as much as I can with my inner child, all that stuff. And then I go approach my wife with an openness and a desire to share, and she's going to share her parts. And we move together in parallel lives, in union. She's the best thing in my life, in union. But I don't rely on her. to. I rely on her when I need something. You know, I need some advice. Hey, I'm really feel, I'm feeling low here. I just want to talk about it, whatever that is. Those are, those are real needs. Those are, and, and I rely on her for that when, when those moments occur. But in general, I want to be, I want to be a partner moving forward in life parallel with her and, and sharing, but I've got to fulfill my own sense of self. Mm. So you're, you're a father of, of three daughters, correct? Yes, sir. What are their, yeah. what are their ages? <laughs> 23, uh, 21 and 19 yesterday. Got it. So what have you learned uh, from being a father and then, and then how, how does your practice impact your role as a father? Maybe just down to your conversations and certain things you, you let them work through on their own versus certain things where they can come lean on, lean on you. Maybe just talk about that whole relationship great, or dynamic in general. That's a, fan, that's a fantastic question. It really is a fantastic question. Um, what have I learned? Well, I, I thought I was pretty cool in the 90s and the 2000s. And, and um, I realized my girls have reminded me quite a bit that I'm really not that cool. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Ish. Um, I've learned about the feminine energy like, like a PhD class. And I've learned how the feminine 
interacts, what they desire versus the masculine. You know, the feminine is really based on kind of giving and sharing, giving and receiving love and holding space. And and, it, and, and the feminine is much more relational. It, it's I've, the feminine energy. And this is David Deddy's work, um, The Way of the Superior Man, amazing book. He talks a lot about how the feminine what drives the feminine, what they're looking for. And it's much, it's much more relational. Their sense of self is built on relationships. And so a lot of times the feminine doesn't want problems to be solved where the masculine energy is based on the mission, solving the thing, going out, you know, the gladiators and the NFL and, you know, you know, a mission to the death is a different energy set, male, male and female. And those are generalizations, but you know, they ring very, very true. And so I learned a lot of times in the old days, I would try to I would lecture the girls, hey, do this and do that. And I just realized it wasn't working. Mm. I've gone become much better just holding space. Do you want to talk? Great. If you don't, I'll hold space. You know, I'll say nothing. My girls will start, you know, complaining or saying all this kind of stuff. And in the old days, I'd jump in and try to correct them on their their perspective on that issue. And nowadays, I don't do any correcting. I just hold space. If they're asking my opinion, I'll share it. But I'm not trying to teach. I'm not trying to be didactic. I'm just trying to trying to understand them so they can understand me and be be of value. Um, I try to you know try to give a perspective that has you know I'm a little bit older, so I've got that perspective. But I'm really getting better at understanding the world that their experiences, which is completely different than the world that I went through in terms of all this exposure, all the so all the social media stuff all their sense of self, you know, all that sense of lack of self, self-worth, you know, seeing other people having all these successes and there you are with your, you know, having your normal life. Right. Um, I tell you the one big thing when I was counseling, I've done a lot of counseling of, of I ran a juvenile justice program. Um, I counseled suicidal teens when I first opened up my practice. Um, I was counseling, you know, rich folks in Connecticut, all the above, all different categories. And I was counseling um, young women, young girls, and I was able to see how their fathers were acting or behaving, doing the best they could, not bad guys, good guys, trying to do the best they could. And I realized I learned so much because I had great perspective and I could offer perspective to a perfect stranger, aka a client. And I realized I'm not doing enough of that in my own life. I'm not doing enough of hearing my daughters. I'm not doing enough of just... Um, not trying to, to, to dictate or try to, um, you know, browbeat or criticize. Like I, I, I've got to do less of that and just be more present. And so I learned so much. I would come home from a day of counseling and my, my wife and I said, sweetheart, I'm an idiot. Here's what I learned. She's like, wow, you just got to do more counseling other people because that's where I learned. Um, so it was great. I really love, I, I really, really enjoy holding space for other people and I'm, and I'm pretty good at it. Well, Bill, this has been awesome. We went over a little bit as expected, but um, we're going to have to have you come back on. Absolutely. At some I point. Love we, to. we could we could go down some rabbit holes with you, man. In a lot of directions. <laughs> exactly. And I'm, yeah. Now, this has been Pick great. A rabbit hole, I'll join you. Yeah, this is great. Well, so usually this Thank is you. like right around where we, we wrap up and kind of give you the floor. We're going to, I'll yeah. ask you kind of like, hey, what do you want to leave our, our, our listeners with? But then Tony's will, Tony will also ask you to, about uh, sure. how we can follow you, your journey, things like that. So I'll, I'll start off and just ask you, you know, what do you want to leave our listeners with? Uh, 30 seconds of motivation or 30 seconds of whatever floor is yours. Yep. Thank you. Um, the human experience is desire-based. And where we run into blocks is that we have a belief system inside our head, inside our rational mind that our desires come up and like, oh, I really want to do that. Oh, I don't think I can do it. Oh, I really want to do that. I don't think I can do it. And that's that gap between what we believe we can do and what we desire. 
my, my thing is do something today that you love and just do it. If you, if you only do it for 10 minutes, do it for eight minutes, do it for 45 minutes, just do something that you love, whether it's read or write or try a new business, whatever it is, do it. Action will move you closer to breaking down that belief. Action and desire are the keys to life. And I'm telling you, meditate, sit quietly with your back straight in a room for 10 minutes a day. And I promise you as a money back guarantee, you will shift your perspective. You will understand yourself at a deeper level and memories will come up. You will probably shed a tear, which means you're growing and evolving. And that's what we're here to do. It's like you literally prepared for us to ask you this question. We did not let you, we did not give you, there was no prep. Of, it was there was knowledge no prep. in advance that this was yeah. going to happen. You just hopped right into it. Well said, man. That's so well, amazing. Thank, Thank you, you so much. This has been one Absolutely of my favorite guys. interviews just because I'm I really interested that. in this stuff. So, uh, you know, why don't we wrap up with how we can follow you, how people can connect sure. with you? Yep, absolutely. So um, pretty easy. I've got a website, um, not not super sophisticated, but it's called wholecounseling.com. It's not whole foods, but it's wholecounseling.com. That's kind of where I came up with it. Um, my book's out on Amazon and everywhere else. Uh, you can buy books, Barnes and Nobles. It's called Waking Up Marriage, Finding Truth in Your Partnership. And um, it's not about marriage. Don't let the title kind of spooky. It's really about learning about self in any relationship, whether it's your boss, your neighbor, your friend. Um, there's some really good stories. It's a research-based account of how to grow and learn through the interaction of every relationship. I call it Stand in the Fire. Um, you can find that. And yeah, my website and I've got my, my email there, my phone number and, and give me a shout anytime. Amazing stuff, Bill. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> on. God bless you. Have a great All day. All right. Appreciate it, guys. I gotta say, man, we've had some amazing interviews and I am so blessed to have started this and connected with so many people, but I connected so well with Bill O'Haran. Just everything he's doing is everything that I'm aspiring to do and his level of awareness is something else, man. What was your, what was your biggest takeaway? What was your favorite part of the conversation? It's a good question, man. I mean, there were so many takeaways, but I have to say the kitchen table meditation was one of the biggest things that I was able to relate to. Like when he was talking about it, I was literally sitting there with my eyes closed, like breathing and envisioning it. And if, you know, if you don't remember what the kitchen table meditation was, I mean, go back and listen to it. You just listen to the fucking podcast. But if not, basically envision yourself because I have a really tough time with um, you know, meditating, just sitting there and breathing and blocking out all the noise. I need to think about something, right? So thinking back to when you were a kid at the kitchen table and what that felt like and where have you come from now? What are the experiences that you learned there? That was something that was super powerful for me. And I learned a lot about myself sitting there and his, the, the power of just sitting in silence for so long, I really struggle with it. So my form of meditation, most of the times is just walks and, you know, breathing throughout the day. But, you know, very, you know, a lot of value from this podcast. What about you? I honestly think just hearing his dynamic with, you know, life as a father, um, you know, three girls, you know, it's not easy yeah, in today's day and age, you know, with social media and, and all the things in today's world with people comparing themselves constantly. And um, there's, there's no question about it that in today's day and age, there's a lot of, um, a lot of, I would say without being a parent, I can imagine it, 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 there's some obstacles that parents today have to go through that parents 20, 30 years ago didn't have to go through.
with all this technology and whatnot. So anyways, it was cool to hear him talk about, you know, like you said, the kitchen table, um, you know, life as a father, um, you know, in, in general, just kind of talk about his, the last, you know, 25 years of his experience. Yeah, no, it was, it was a really cool conversation. I actually opened up a little bit about my, um, my use of, uh, mushrooms medicinally, which was really cool to be able to, you know, finally come, come open about that because it's really, you know, big part of my practice here. I mean, I don't do it like recreation. I do it more so for on the spiritual side of things, but it's been a really cool journey. Just really learning a lot about myself and who I am and really honing in on that. Instead of trying to be someone else, let me just, you know, be the absolute best person I can be. And that's been translating in every area of my life, man. There's been so many cool things going on lately. And, you know, I got, I got really emotional recently of just, you know, just being able to look back and say, wow, I put in a lot of fucking work and it's like really paying off. Like, for example, if people were listening to this, this podcast for a while, you would know that I've been training for a triathlon for since like February. And I was not in any bit of shape. Landon could attest to us for a triathlon. I was never a runner. I was always the slowest guy. I was never really too in shape because I always thought like, oh, I was a catcher in baseball. I didn't need to be fast or I didn't need to run a six minute mile. But then I got challenged to do this triathlon. And as a guy who's always trying to be better and stress their mind, I took the challenge on without even knowing what it was about. Trained three to four times a day for like five months straight. And we fucking crushed it. Like when I tell you crush it, I beat every single time than I did in my individual training sessions. Like my mile time, usually like most of the time for the 5K, my mile time was around like on a good day, like 8.30. I was at a 7.30 pace for my mile time in the triathlon. And that was after a swim and a bike. Um, so that just goes to, to show the power of being able to put your mind to something and making it bigger than you. Like I did that I did that triathlon for my nonna who's up in heaven, my uncle Sal who's up there. And then the day before the triathlon, a kid that I played baseball with, 26 years old, died of uh, a brain aneurysm. Terrible, terrible, man. Wow. It, it hurt me so much. It was like really getting me emotional just thinking about it. And so, you know, just at the end of the triathlon, I broke down crying. I couldn't stop. I haven't had a good cry in years, man. Like, I'm not really a crier, but, um, you know, understanding that this wasn't about me and that while I was hurting, thinking about those people pushed me through because they would be killing for one last breath. And I know that sounds so cliche, but it's so fucking true, man. Until you go through some level of suffering to where you want to quit so bad and you harness that energy to push you forward, it's fucking emotional. It's really fucking emotional. I get chills just thinking about it. And then looking back at just putting in hard work and that surfacing, like realizing that, you know, the people who get lucky and the people that actually see results are the people that actually fucking work hard and actually do it every single day and do the things that they're going to say they do. So for the first time in my life, genuinely for the first time in my life, I've done some cool things in my life, but I can officially say that I'm proud of myself in this aspect. What was the toughest part about it? Like what was the, like from start to finish, what was the toughest part? I would say the bike because I've always, I, I was always struggling on the bike, but then I, I hit some complications on the bike because uh, a couple of days before my grandfather insisted that I lowered the seat, which really screwed me because like <laughs> you're not, you're supposed to have a high seat on the bike. So that was stupid. But then when I was biking, I got my bike fixed by the professional's in the uh what right at the triathlon site and they replaced the tube on the bike but they didn't properly fasten the bike back on properly so while i'm riding the bike i'm like six miles into the 16 mile bike and some guy passes me and is like hey like and i'm, I'm realizing i'm like not going fast i'm like i'm like laboring 
some guy passed me. He's like, Hey, like your bike's not on. Right. I stopped in the middle of the highway. It cost me like two, three minutes. I had to p- clamp the bike back on mm. immediately after like another couple of miles, my water bottle fell off the bike. So I had no hydration. So I had to go right into the run dehydrated. Um, but I crushed the fucking run, man. I crushed it. And you know, once your feet hit the ground, you know that like, you know, and a swim, you get a little nervous, but once your feet hit the ground, you know that like if you had to, you'd walk, but I just hit the ground running and, and went for it. And it's, it's swim, bike, run, right? So how long was the swim? How long was the bike and how long was the run? Yep. So, so the swim was half a mile. The bike was 16 miles. And then the run was a 5k, which is about 3.2 miles. Sure. Sure. That's great. And, and what's your plan? Are you going to be doing more of these? Are you going to, are you going to do the, uh, so this was a, this was like an Olympic style, right? No. So it wasn't a, it wasn't Olympic, um, Olympics a little bit further. Um, where this, this is what was called a sprint triathlon. We're actually going to do a further one. I was thinking about next year cause I wanted to go back to like traditional weightlifting cause I felt like I lost a lot of muscle, mm. but, um, they want to do another one in like three weeks. I'm like, what the fuck guys? You guys are shit. <laughs> what the fuck is going on? Like my boss, the guy, the guy literally had a heart attack last year and died. He was dead for a minute. And this guy fucking ran the triathlon with us this year. That's and he awesome. wants to run another one. He just sent us in a group chat. So it's, um, you know, it's crazy what the human body can do. That's awesome, man. And, and you're, uh, not to mention you're, you're coming to the finish line of 75 hard. Hell yeah. Not to mention, Hell yeah. right? I imagine it's we been are- kind of easy for you. It's been easier for you to train for a triathlon with 75 hard in your, in your, in your, in your system, right? Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, you know, you're, you're a lot more on top of your game. You have to get the two workouts in. So that's a lot easier. You know, you're running, you're biking as the two workouts and you're swimming. Um, and then your nutrition, your energy is always pretty solid, um, because your nutrition is so on point. My sleep has been on point. Um, weirdly enough, my progress pictures, I actually look a little bit worse than I did when I first started just because I was really honing in on the weightlifting and cutting up side, side of things. Now I've just been more on the endurance side. So I lost a little bit of the definition. Um, but it's been awesome, man. I'm about 12 days away as we speak right now. Um, we're recording this a couple days earlier than the Thursday that we're going to release, but, um, I still haven't done my, my second workout outside. It's about eight o'clock Eastern time. Still haven't done my second workout. Still haven't read my book. Still got another quarter gallon of water, um, and still haven't taken my progress picture. And I have not left my desk since like eight a.m. Um, <laughs> went to the gym at five thirty and have just been getting after it since. It has been a rough day to say the least. Not a rough day, like a very productive day, but like we got a lot of work to do after this podcast. How does your body feel right now through the triathlon and seventy five hour? You're 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 giving it you're giving it a lot. Like how does it feel? I'm ready to run another one. Yeah, you feel good. Like, like literally, I feel phys- like a fucking champion. Physically, you feel completely fine. No soreness. No. Yeah. Um. I mean, I was de- dealing with some soreness early on, and then um, I've just been really. I, I've always hated recovery and stretching and stuff, but I've started to hone in on that as the triathlon got nearer. So my, I, I feel mint right now. I do. That's awesome, man. So did you have to stretch? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm always curious to this because I have, I have a lot of back problems, and I'm trying to get into triathlons, trying to get into this stuff a little bit more. Uh, in depth because the weight room gets boring after a while or you can get mundane you can get sick of it and tired of the same you know mm-hmm. 5 a.m wake up go pound some weight uh and there's body, no high there is no high like finishing a triathlon man yeah i swear there's no high than like really suffering and accomplishing something mm. sorry go ahead no no that's it i mean that's kind of it like i i'm kind of at this place where you know I've i've been in the weight room my whole life uh i, I i've never been a 
I've, I've always been a runner, but I've never been like a, Hey, I'm going to go run a marathon, but I kind of want to get into some of that stuff just to one push myself mentally, but two just kind of shift it up a little bit, shift up what I'm doing in my life, mm-hmm. like physically. Um, but, but in general, like as far as recovery goes, like what did your body feel like the next day? Honestly, it felt good. So weird. Like so you weird. You, you weren't your, so- your knees, your legs, your ankles, your feet, nothing. No, I, I feel so good. Wow. I feel so good. And that, that's a testament because it was like a sprint triathlon. You know, at the end, we still put our bodies through a lot of pounding. But if I ran an Ironman, I'm sure I wouldn't say that I'd be feeling as good. Um, but I'll, I'll run an Ironman one day. Fuck it. Let's do it. My, my fucking dad did like three or four weeks ago. Crazy, dude. He did Ironman? Yeah, he ran, a, he ran an Ironman, bro. That's ridiculous. My dad's, my dad's like 52. Yeah. Wow. He ran an Ironman. Wait, wait. So the one he did was like 70 and a half miles. So is that a half Ironman or a full? That might be a, or like they might call it like Ironman 70. Um, like there's certain thresholds. Okay. Um, yeah, he swam. For the, for the sheer fact, for the sheer fact that you had to say it was like 70 and a half miles might make it like not. I think it's like a, a half. Quarter Ironman. I think it's a half Ironman. He swam like a mile and a half or something like that. Two miles maybe. Uh, he ran 13 and biked like 40 or 50 or some shit. Yeah. So that's a half because. Uh, a sw- like I think the, the the Ironman is like two mile swim, a hundred and twelve mile bike, and a marathon. And you have to do it in in seventeen hours. Jesus, uh, yeah. So oh, he dude, definitely he did the half he did the half Ironman. That's still impressive yeah. at any age. Um, yeah, I love this shit, man. But you know, I don't want to get too far into it. If anyone has any questions, you know, DM us. I'm more than happy to talk about it. I love this stuff. Bro, um, but I bro. did want to recommend. Go ahead. Go no, hit, hit him with the recommendation. But I had something to add though. Like, I, I was thinking about this today on my run. I was like, like we're not doing this. Sh- you don't do this shit because it makes you look good, like physically. I, I I've found like whenever I focus on the way my body looks, all that shit, I'm in it for the wrong reasons, and I don't work out as much. Like the the feeling you get inside after you finish this stuff, like it's it's about going through some type of adversity and pushing yourself physically. I have so much of a better day. I'm so much more productive. It's it's something beyond just the physical aspect that's a result of it. So, but sorry, go, absolutely. But go no, ahead. the mind is so powerful, and that's what it's all about. You know, at the end of the day, the physical things are going to come. Who cares about that? Like, you, you, it, it's about the being in a peak state, especially for what we do for a living. And you know, as entrepreneurs, what we're trying to do, you have to be in a peak state every day. You can't take any of those days off. And how do you do that? You do that by exercising. You do that by stressing yourself. You do that by putting yourself in uncomfortable situations so that when things get uncomfortable, because they are guaranteed to get uncomfortable, you're going to be told no a million and a half times that you can sit down and actually, you know, take a breath and compose yourself. Um, here's my dog next to me. She's, she's licking my elbow right now, um, if anyone's on video. But I did want to, before we wrap up, I did want to recommend the book that Bill O'Haran recommended, which was a life-changing book for me. It's called The Way of the Superior Man. I referenced it in the beginning of this podcast. Um, it's more so tailored towards alpha males and how to deal with women, but it's it's for everybody. It's really of how the masculine and the feminine energy connect with each other and how to deal with it and how you know the masculine is all about achieving some type of purpose and achieving a goal. And the feminine is about love. Um, and we we all have masculine and feminine properties and how to harness them. It is the coolest book. And so I highly recommend everyone take a little read. And if you want to read it and discuss it with me, I'm that type of nerd. So with that being said, I love you. There are so many big things coming. I'm going to give you one little one little snippet that's actually happening. And this is one thing that you'll get without having to, uh, you know, dive deeper and be part of the inner circle. A 75 hard documentary is coming. 
it is coming and it is going to be fucking legit. Thanks for tuning in to the Learn Lead Podcast, where you get to own your life. Stay tuned for our future guests coming soon. Make sure to like and subscribe.